Hello, and welcome to Energy Levelized. I'm Morgan. And I'm Bill, and we're your hosts. Energy Levelized is a glimpse behind the scenes, a chance to hear from the passionate personalities behind the mountains of research the Enverus Intelligence team puts out on the energy space. For those that aren't familiar with Enverus, we're an energy SaaS firm that is influencing the world's most important energy decisions by connecting an industry through intelligence, data analytics, and smart network technologies. We invite you to join us as we have fun, unscripted, and honest conversations tackling the toughest questions in energy. Hey, Bill, how's it going? Pretty good, thanks, Morgan. How are you? Pretty good. It's uh, been a seemingly a long summer. We took a bit of a break, but now we're back at the podcasting. We have a pretty interesting topic. It's getting a lot of airtime lately, especially with COP26 coming up. Um, but today we're going to be chatting with two Enverus experts on CCUS. So we'll cover everything from what is CCUS. We'll, we'll do the 30-second bit, uh, the 101 of that. Uh, and then just, you know, what it means for the energy transition and, and how energy companies should be thinking about it, if, if they should be thinking about it and how they can participate in it. Uh, so, Bill, why don't you introduce our guests? Yes, so we're delighted to have um, Heather Leahy uh, and Graham Bain with us today. Uh, Heather joined RS Energy Group, which is now part of Enverus, in uh, September 2018, and is a member of the team covering the Eagle Ford, uh, and recently started covering CCUS. Uh, she earned a degree in chemical engineering and management from McMaster University in Ontario, and previously worked in uh, various exploitation and production roles in, in Calgary. Um, Graham has a master's degree in integrated petroleum geosciences and six years of experience working as a geologist. His experience has ranged from oil exploration in Nisku formation carbonate reefs at a small Calgary-based company to oil sands analysis and regulation at the Alberta regulator. Graham currently works as a geologist on the Inverus Permian Basin Intelligence Team and has recently started to focus on carbon capture and storage technology as well. So we go back to the, the sort of the primary 101 question, which is there's currently, if you look at CCUS, there's about 40 million tons of, of uh, carbon capture going on globally right now, but most of it is concentrated in North America, Canada, and the US. Um, what is it and, and why is it important and, and to what extent is it going to be a part of the, the future in terms of carbon mitigation? Graham, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'd like to start off saying that, you know, I think that number is actually close to about 80 million tons a year when you include uh, uh, CO2 enhanced oil recovery, uh, gas recovery and enhanced coal bed methane recovery. So the, the 40 uh, megatons, I think, is mostly with the actual sequestration um, component of it. Uh, so actually storing it in saline aquifers or using it in other um, applications. But I guess just the 30 seconds on um, CCUS, you know, CCUS carbon capture utilization and storage, um, starting with the capture piece, obviously taking CO2 either from an emission stream or directly from the atmosphere through some sort of solvent process or sorbent or membrane and actually taking that out of, you know, purifying that into pure CO2. And then the utilization aspect, I think, falls under, say, EUR or um, in enhanced recovery methodologies or using it in processes like 
for pop or soda, like actually using that for carbonation or um, using it in concrete. Um, so there's a bunch of utilization aspects, but I think the real focus is the storage aspect right now. And, you know, that's the hot topic is not with EUR applications, not with all these other applications, but actually storing it permanently in the subsurface I mean, either depleted oil and gas fields or uh, saline aquifers. And I think the hot topic now is uh, saline aquifers and um, what that sort of looks like going forward. You know, in, in terms of where that sits in the future, I think it, it does have a bright future. Um, there's a lot of current commercial projects going on as well um, to demonstrate its feasibility. Um, I think, you know, there is still more that needs to be learned and done, especially for um, saline aquifer storage. Um, in terms of EUR, that's been happening since the 1970s. So it's it's more of a more mature technology, the actual EOR process rather than the saline storage. But through what's called the um, storage management resources system, which is an advancement on the uh, resources management system by the SPE, sort of the reserves and resources classification, they came out with one for CO2. And um, the, uh, the Global CCS Institute actually came out with a number of something like 12,000 gigatons of potential global storage, um, undiscovered or prospective. And so, you know, there's a significant amount of storage for uh, CO2. Whether it's all commercially viable is difficult to say. And I think that's, you know, dives much deeper into, you know, what, what the carbon pricing is, um, you know, what the what the emitter source is, its proximity. There's a there's a ton of factors that go into the economics as well. I think that was more than 30 seconds, but <laughs> fantastic answer. Uh, Heather, are there any commercial or pilot CCUS um, projects in North America that, that particularly grab your interest or you kind of see as leading the charge on this? Yeah, so I guess if we start up in Canada, there's a couple a couple there. Um, I guess one of the first ones would be in Weyburn in Saskatchewan, currently operated by Whitecap, and that one has changed hands a couple of times, um, but has been operational, I want to say, for a couple of decades. And um, the focus there is on EOR, so a little bit different from what Graham was describing with permanent sequestration, where at this point, or kind of through time, the economic driver, the primary economic driver was um, oil production. But right now, we're starting to see a bit more focus on carbon pricing, whether that be a carbon tax um, in Canada or elsewhere in the States, we're seeing some more incentives. Um, so there's a little bit more, I guess, of a driver or momentum behind that type of project. Um, down in the States, probably one of the operators we focused on quite a bit has been Denbury, and they also have focused on um, EOR, but They've spoken quite a bit about expanding to permanent sequestration. And what makes them pretty unique is that they have the infrastructure in place. Um, kind of still up for debate about how easy it is to build a lot of those pipes, but they have, I wanna say like 500 um, or so miles of pipe in the Gulf. And, and the Gulf is a great place to be because there's so many mission sources and they're so concentrated there. But there's quite a bit of opportunity to to pull from some of those um, emitters and uh, fill up their system and um, continue to either inject for EOR or, or potentially expand to to permanent sequestration. I was wondering, Heather. I mean, do you think yeah. this works um, economically? Uh, in, 
without a carbon price in any way, or does do you, do you need to be able to price carbon to make uh, CCUS work? I'm not talking about EOR. I'm just talking about it as pure sequestration. Yeah. So the primary driver would be some form of carbon pricing, um, whether that be again a tax or some form of incentive. Kind of the other angles I can see in which it would work maybe without um, some form of carbon pricing would be, and there's been talk about it, but it really hasn't materialized yet, would be some form of premium um, for the materials being produced by that uh, emitter site. And, and that would kind of compensate for the cost of having to, um, to sequester. So an example would be like cement plant. They wanted to have low carbon cement and maybe could um, charge a kind of premium for their product and that would compensate for the cost of injection. Um, there is kind of like a, a social license type angle to it as well and an ability to, um, I guess, attract more investors to say kind of an oil and gas business because they have a they're lower carbon um, producing, but definitely that policy piece is a pretty important driver. Graham, um... I was wondering, I mean, I'm looking at the stack of, of CCUS projects that exist so far to date, and it's definitely dominated by um, gas processing, as opposed to, say, power or other industrial um, situations. Do you think it's a possibility that that could be more um, adopted as a more widespread strategy for, for carbon capture across the, the global piece with gas processing? Yeah, I, th I think so for sure. Um, I think it's uh, a matter of the actual size of the emitting source. Um, so scale is definitely a big factor in reducing costs um, for both injection, transportation, um, and you know actually extracting that CO2 from the emitter. But also um, the purity of the carbon is pretty important. And I think that's why gas processing is quite a dominant stream. And so, you know, I think as these technologies sort of mature, um, costs will come down and they will sort of begin to be proven more economic. Currently, maybe not as competitive, but, um, you know, definitely going forward, I think I think we'll see that that happening. Sure. If I can just add to that, like it's a, it's a good point and something worth distinguishing that I don't think I really fully realized when I first started looking at this is that we often like to say not every, I guess, carbon molecule is created equal in that some are extracted from facilities where the CO2 is at a very low concentration or it's pretty contaminated and it requires a lot more energy to actually extract that um, that CO2. So once it hits the, the pipeline, for example, or the storage side, it's been um, kind of scrubbed out and it's that same molecule, but just the process of getting there differs quite a bit, which is why we see natural gas kind of on the the low end of the cost curve versus some other sectors like you might be producing cement or um, like iron or steel, anything like that that requires a lot more a lot more energy to get that CO2 stream extracted. That's where we're going to see some differentiation in cost. Um, but it's kind of interesting to see there's more and more, focus on, like Graham said, technology, especially aimed at those harder to abate sectors. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Heather. Just what makes it actually economically viable um, depends on where the hydrocarbon is, is initially coming from, I guess, or not hydrocarbon, but CO2 molecule. Um, and yeah. 
that kind of brings me to my next question is there's a lot of skeptics or, or critics to these net zero targets put out by governments in whether or not they're actually possible. Like it's great to have that target, but what's the pathway to achieve that? And a lot of them seem to depend on CCUS technology, technology that's realistically still being developed today. So my question for, for both of you is, you know, what do you think it'll take for CCUS to become that viable pathway? Like what hurdles does it have to overcome to be, I guess, at scale um, to meet those economic thresholds? Just looking for your opinion on that. Yeah, go for it, Heather. I'll, I'll follow up. <laughs> I'll start because I can mention some things, but you can definitely get into a lot more detail than I can. Um, I think there's a couple different risks or things that need to be accounted for. Just kind of where we're at right now with CCUS, um, broadly, there's been a lot of excitement. You've heard a lot of announcements in the last call it six months, like it's been honestly hard to keep up with all the announcements. Um, and there's a lot of intention there, but there aren't a lot of, um, you know, firm plans put in place, firm plans around um, actually incentivizing emitters to want to capture their carbon. We've heard lots of objectives, but haven't really heard of any um, kind of these contracts that have been secured with various emitters. Um, I think the second piece, and you kind of look at it as you go down the spectrum, the risk might be as far as kind of transportation goes, how easy it, is it to actually build some of these pipelines um, in the Gulf? You know, I would think it would be quite a bit easier than in, up in the Northeast where there's actually quite a bit of emissions, but like the ease of building pipe as we've seen can be a little bit challenging. But I think one of the biggest pieces that I probably undervalued when I first started looking at this was the storage component. Um, how much have we actually done as far as injecting CO2 and, and permanently sequestering it there. Um, there's been a number of examples of EOR, but less so on the permanent sequestration side. And that's kind of a risk that um, I think we often times overlook and um, just mainly focus on the capture side. So maybe Graham can comment on that a little bit further. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, there's projected something like 12,000 gigatons of potential global storage, right? But when you actually turn that into sort of more of a um, reserves number rather than a resource number, you're looking at about 0.1 gigatons. And so that number drastically is, is shrunk like majorly by what, what we've actually discovered as a potential storage resource rather than, you know, something that's undiscovered or prospective. And so I think, you know, there's going to have to be a lot of delineation of subsurface reservoirs to determine specifically where there are really good reservoirs that can support the injection of huge amounts of CO2. So if we're talking about economies of scale, um, reducing these costs, um, you need to be able to inject a lot of CO2 from these hub sites, um, right? So currently, for example, projects like um, Quest in Alberta, or even um, Gorgon in Australia, um, I think it's injecting some of the most CO2 about at least projected to inject about three to four megatons per year, quested about one megaton per year. Um, but you know, you need to have some either some really good permeability, so the ability for the CO2 act CO2 to actually flow in the reservoir, but also a ton of porosity and a thick reservoir that can actually store a ton of this CO2 from one of these mega hubs or mega projects. Um, because you don't want to have to, you know, have a project that can only support, say, five years of injection or 10 years of injection, 
Um, but you know, you want a reservoir that can support 30, 40 years of injection with minimal pressure management. And so that's that's the other aspect of it as well. The more CO2 you're injecting into these reservoirs, the more the pressure is going to increase. And so you need some sort of pressure management system like employed at Gorgon. They have three wells that actually produce water out of the formation that they're injecting CO2 into, and they're re-injecting that into a formation above that. But they're actually running into a bunch of problems with um, producing sand and problems with their production well bores getting clogged up. And so they're unable to sort of meet their injection requirements with that. So, you know, I think particularly with saline storage, um, there is still a lot of work that needs to go into delineating these reservoirs because you think about depleted oil and gas fields, um, you know, that might be a more viable target because those reservoirs are already delineated. There's a lot of science, um, you know, there's a lot of geological work, engineering work that has gone into these reservoirs. There's already well bores in them, um, but that also poses risks. So, for example, if you have a legacy oil and gas field with 100-year-old wells um, that are all cut and capped, there's something to say about the integrity of those well bores now. And so if you were to repressurize those reservoirs, inject some CO2, um, that could lead to potential escape pathways, which is sort of listed as one of the biggest risks to um, CO2 injection in these reservoirs. And so, well, Graham, I mean, would you say that if this was the major uh, defensive strategy of oil and gas companies, do you sense that that they are able to do this at scale enough, given the geology that you're aware of? Um, to I mean, does your gut tell you this is scalable to 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 the sort of level that it needs to be to be a major plank of of an oil and gas company's response to climate challenges? Yeah, that's a really good question. I in saline aquifers right now, I I think there's going to have to be a lot of time and money that goes into it before we can really say that it's scalable in those saline reservoirs. For EOR, uh, no doubts, um, because you've got pressure management, you're extracting the oil from it. I think pressure is going to be a huge um, factor for these saline injection, um, CO2 injection projects. And so, I mean, if if you count EOR as storage, which I think you kind of can, because ultimately, as soon as you know all the oil is extracted from the reservoir, that CO2 is going to stay down there. It's going to be sequestered. So I think we'll see in the next 10 years what happens with that, because you know there's been pilot projects going on for the last 20 years, um, and we haven't seen it scale up uh, yet. And so maybe this is the push that we need right now. You know, the interest that's peaked over the last two years or so to really get it going. Um, and there's definitely more info than there was 20 years ago um, with these pilots. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. You, uh, Graham, you mentioned that Alberta uh, having a lot of the components uh, that would make a good sequestration reservoir, um, which is a good segue or, or chance to plug our next episode after this, we're sitting down with Patrick Elliott uh, who's the COO and co-founder of Carbon Alpha, um, which is a, a private company focused on carbon sequestration uh, within Alberta. So we'll be able to to pick his brain on, on that side of the, the front and what's happening in Alberta. But definitely um, both of you have instilled maybe a, a, a higher level of confidence, at least for myself in you know, CCUS as a as a technology um, as we move towards these net zero targets. 
across the globe. I don't know. How about you, Bill? I know you're you're more on the skeptic side of how do we actually get there and is CCUS a, I, is I, it I, the I, silver bullet? I don't think it's the silver bullet, but it is fascinating to hear the detail of, of what may be possible. I think the challenge of carbon is so enormous when you think that as globally we're emitting what, 56 billion tons a year, that at the moment this is still a, a scratch or a drop in the ocean. But I, I, I still think um, if oil and gas companies are serious about uh, mitigation, this is the sort of thing that they're going to have to find a way to make it work. So I think it's a very, very hot topic for us. Um, and it's great to be at the forefront with, with uh, colleagues like Graham and Heather leading the charge on this sort of thing. It's fantastic. Definitely. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, if we're trying to, if the goal is to just reduce, you know, CO2 in the atmosphere, I think CCUS plays an important role in the mix of everything else, right? Like it's not going to be the silver bullet and I don't think there is one silver bullet, right? But all of these new technologies, um, new energy technologies, you know, everything combined is sort of, I think what we need to make this happen ultimately. Definitely. Awesome. I'd agree with that. Awesome. Well, <laughs> well, thank you both so much for joining in on this conversation. Um, we look forward to uh, hearing more about your CCUS work. Cool. Thanks. thanks, Morgan. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having us. Cheers. This podcast was recorded on September 16th, 2021. Inveris Intelligence Research Incorporated provides leading energy industry research and is a subsidiary of Inveris, the largest SaaS company in the world solely dedicated to the energy market. Therefore, any company mentioned in this podcast may be a subscriber or client of Inveris Intelligence Research, Inveris, or their affiliates. However, any views expressed in this podcast accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about any subject securities referenced. The information contained in this recording is provided for information purposes only and is not to be used or considered as investment advice or recommendation or offer to buy, hold, or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Please visit www.inveris.com disclosures for additional information.